This month marks the 505th anniversary of the moment when a little-known monk named Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation. It all began when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. But who is and what's this man who challenged the highest authorities of his day so that the truth of the gospel could be made known and preached? And who were some of the others who would impact the faith of millions for centuries to follow? Hi, welcome to the Great Stories podcast. My name is Charles Morris. And on today's episode, I'll be speaking with a number of scholars and historians to explore the lives of some of the Protestant Reformation's most influential leaders, many of them preachers. In a moment, you'll hear about Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Catherine von Bora, Wanda Valdez, and Thomas Cranmer, all of them played a substantial role in recentering the church's teaching on Christ and the scripture, wherever you are in your faith, these people have had a profound impact on the way we all see the gospel today. And so in honor of the Reformation's 505th anniversary, I'm happy you're here to learn more about those who came before us and took a stand against corruption for the sake of the uncorrupted gospel. Let's get started. Welcome to Haven Today and I'm Charles Morris coming to you from Southern California this year of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you may not even know this, but you can trace your religious roots back to a man named Martin Luther. And on the line with us from Florida is Barry Cooper. He's an author and he's a teacher, and he's also the host of a brand new documentary called Luther that we have for you this week here on the program. So, Barry, welcome for the very first time to Haven Today. (laughs) Thank you so much, Charles. It's good to have you on as we talk about Martin Luther. Some author wrote, The Reformation was not concerned with establishing a new Christian tradition, but with the renewal and correction of an existing tradition. What do you think he meant by that? Well, the new and existing tradition, I mean, this is what's what's fascinating with, with the Reformation, of course, is that uh, Martin Luther never set out to create a new church as such. For him, as a monk, seeing the way that the Roman Catholic Church was, uh, you know, orthodoxy was working its way out in terms of indulgences in particular, as he saw that happening, he was just filled with such a sense of revulsion at what the church had become that really... His, his passion was to reform the Roman Catholic Church. He was not a, a schismatic who was, who was des- desperate to create a new denomination or a new church. He just dearly wanted the church that he loved to recover its first love. And uh, mm. so that's what's been you know, fascinating for me as I've looked to the life of Luther. Mm. And I know we have Lutherans listening to us, and they would all know that Martin Luther never wanted a church in his name. And yet that's been the case outside of Germany. And yet, I think what we should do is go back and just tell the story of Martin Luther. We'll get to his theology. We'll get to how the spirit of the living God invaded his life more as a monk. But tell us a little bit about him. How did he grow up? How was he educated? What happened? Yeah, Martin Luther uh, was a man who uh, was born in Eisleben in Germany, and uh, he was somebody who 
started originally, his father actually wanted him to be a, a miner, wanted him to go down into the mines. That was what his father did. And um, uh, Luther was, uh, unfortunately, he had this um, this extraordinary moment where uh, he was uh, walking in the fields and uh, uh, the lightning, uh, lightning bolt struck the ground and uh, Luther famously cried out, uh, save me, I'll, I'll become a monk. And uh, because his life was spared, that was a real change in trajectory for his life. So he then decided he was going to become a monk, much to his uh, father's consternation. Hmm. And hmm. Um, as, of course, Luther did that, he, uh, I mean, he was an extraordinarily dedicated and uh, passionate monk. I mean, this was a man who was constantly going to confession because he was so aware of the, of the sin in his life. He, it's fair to say he took it all very, very seriously. I think this is what in many ways lays the groundwork for the Reformation because he saw around him people who frankly were not taking it as seriously as he obviously was. And there's these famous stories of him going to confession and then being told by the priest, actually, Martin, would you come back when you have something serious to confess? You know, this is actually not that big a deal. And of course, for him, it was huge. He was somebody who increasingly, by God's grace, um, became aware of a weight of Mm. sin inside him, which he couldn't seemed to do anything about and as he read scripture he saw that the lord demanded complete and utter holiness of him and so he found himself not loving god but actually hating god he wrote you know i hated god because he made these demands through the law upon me which i couldn't possibly bear had no way of fulfilling and that Mm. of course drove him to the pivotal moment of, of finding in scripture um, the fact that there was a righteousness available to him, which was not his own. It was an, a, a righteousness, an alien righteousness, as he called it, which could be bestowed upon him simply by faith. And that, of course, was one of the turning points in terms of uh, Reformation um, doctrine. The famous line, the just shall live by faith, you know, that just, just uh, yeah. meant so much to him and God used with him in his life. Let's dig into a little more about what he taught and what change that brought about in Christendom. But let's pause for a minute. Let's remember we're talking 500 years ago. That anniversary of the Reformation will be this October 31st, 1517, when he nailed those theses. But let's talk about the Middle Ages. There was disease and 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 just people were dying all around him. What was it like? I mean, you've you've been there before. You've been to to where he was born, where he lived. Talk to us a little bit what it would have been like going to church. And everybody did go to church in the Middle Ages. Hmm. Well, I have to say, I mean, the experts on this are the, the experts we have on the on the documentary. They're the guys with the brains the size of planets on that kind of thing. But certainly, <laughs> certainly in terms of my own sort of um, visits to the places where we where we went, what is striking is this was a, a culture in which the idea of heaven above us, hell below us, um, angels, demons, all of this was starting, startlingly immediate and real to people in a way that I don't think it is even to Christians like ourselves today. There was a sense of being, and I'm sure this was exacerbated, of course, by the, the sense of mortality. I mean, the, 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 you know, the average life expectancy at that time was, was not very high at all. I guess it would probably be in the sort of the 30s somewhere. And so you're constantly poised, hanging between heaven or hell. And so there was a tremendous sense of, of urgency, which, of course, is what put the Roman Catholic Church in such an incredibly privileged and powerful position, because here you had people coming 
coming to church. The mass was said in Latin, uh, which most people simply could not understand. So they were having to take an awful lot, as it were, on trust mm. from the guy at the front who's doing all the preaching and telling them what's okay and what's not okay and whether their sins have been absolved or not absolved. And so, again, this is why uh, what Luther did was so extraordinary, because using that translation of the Bible into the vernacular, the German vernacular, which could be understood by the average person on the street was absolute dynamite because for the first time mm. people were hearing the gospel they were understanding it. they were hearing uh, the whole counsel of god preached um hearing about jesus hearing about all these extraordinary things and 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 in in a, in a very real sense hearing them as it were for the first time and that was as as luther of course famously said i mean that was you know as far as he was concerned he that god's word is the thing that did all the work it wasn't really him he was sitting with his friends drinking beer apparently and you know all of this just kind of happened by itself because god's word is so um, powerful now of course you know martin luther's being slightly tongue-in-cheek there um, and i love him for it as an ex-stand-up comedian i do like a theologian who tells a joke <laughs> now and again it's very very good to know but that was what was going it was an absolute powder keg once people began to hear god's word in, in the native tongue mm. i think i read somewhere that one reason god allowed the reformation at that point in history was because in martin luther's lifetime the printing press was invented. Yes. And of course, he was writing in German. But uh, from what I hear you say, this was a way to get the gospel out there that wasn't available before. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable how technology can can drive that? It's very interesting that there is that sense of the power of the written word. He absolutely um, harnessed that, the power of the written word, I guess, had never been more powerful than that at that time. Wow. You're right. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to Haven Today. We're calling our series Luther. And on with us is Barry Cooper. He's an author and teacher, and he's the host of a brand new, just out documentary on the life of Martin Luther. I'm Charles Morris, and we'll tell you how to get a copy of this a little bit later. Uh, let's go back now and begin to talk about what the Lord used from Martin Luther. And let me just read a quote by Luther. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. So I'll let you loose now. Let's talk about grace and faith a little bit. Yeah, the, the as we were saying earlier, the the real revelation, I think, for Luther was was recognizing that that justification cannot come about by the law. We're just reading actually in our church down here in uh, Daytona Beach, reading Galatians. And of course, Paul's point all the way through that is actually the law in a sense kills. Um, the law tells you um, what you're doing wrong. It is a schoolmaster which points you towards Christ, but is not meant to save in and of itself. It's meant to make you aware of your, of your, your total depravity and your, um, your, your need for salvation. And mm. so for Luther, as he read, as he read Romans in particular, to, to, to suddenly realize that actually that justification comes about not through our works and our good deeds and our attempts to obey the law, but actually the law points us towards the fact that we cannot possibly get that kind of um, righteousness and the righteousness needs to be gifted to us, that it comes about by faith and it's gifted to us by God because of the perfect life and death of his son. 
So mm. that for him, of course, is liberating after he absolutely pummels himself into the ground. And he talks about anfektung, this this extraordinary angst of feeling that, um, you know, just this terrible weight of God's wrath upon him. And then suddenly it was as if the, the, the gates of heaven were flung open, as it were, as he understood justification by faith the first time. And he realized that actually, you know, what Christ had done and why he had done it and that it applied to him and, and all who consider themselves to be poor sinners in need of salvation. And so, of mm. course, that that whole dichotomy of, of law and grace, that understanding, yeah, is crucial to, to Luther and crucial to the Reform, Reformation. Well, Barry, I, I remember in my own life when I was at Jonah and I was running from the Lord, one of the things that brought me back was reading Luther's introduction to his commentary on Galatians. And, and mm-hmm. something that just came through so powerfully is that God's grace is a gift. And uh, that's something, yeah. uh, even in his later life, he never forgot that. He never quit teaching that from the Word, did he? That's right. Yeah, and it, very much the same for me. I mean, I, as I think back to, it would have been back in 1992, I was studying at Oxford and I was making an absolute uh, mess of my life. And I was aware that God was there and that I would have to give an account for my life one day, that I would stand you know, face to face with him and have to explain all this carnage that I'd caused. And there was, as far as I could see it, there was no way out. I couldn't see Mm. how, even if at that moment I suddenly lived a perfect life from that moment at the age of 20 through to my dying day, it still would not be good enough. Because, of course, you know, if you commit a single sin, it's 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 the gravest of offences against a perfectly holy God. And so then at Oxford at that time to go to St. Ebb's Church and hear... Um, uh, hear Vaughan Roberts and others preaching the gospel and understanding for the first time that actually, no, no, you're you're quite right. Your sense of your your sense of your own wretchedness mm-hmm. is absolutely mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. but don't let that drive you into despair. It should drive your eyes upwards to see Christ on the cross dying there for you, precisely for that reason, so that He could take your sin, you can take His righteousness, so that you could mm-hmm. be uh, forgiven and enjoy God uh, forever. And that was an absolute revelation for me. And of course, it's. It, it's the only thing that can truly lead to a moral reformation, in my view. I think right. certainly my experience has been if you feel thoroughly condemned under the law, it has a way of begetting yet more sin. You know, if you feel wretched that you can't save yourself, there is a sense in which human nature throws up its hands and says, well, there's no point in trying because I can mm-hmm. never get to that, mm-hmm. that per- perfection. And so for me, that was kind of the, the state I was in until I understood actually, no, 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 religion is, okay, I, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But no, the gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I mm. obey. And so the obedience followed, but it, it stopped becoming uh, the grounds on which I attempted to relate to God. We still try to get it backwards, don't we? I, yeah, I think that's, that's right. the bottom line there, Barry. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's the default position of the human heart, isn't it? We, we're, we're all tending back there, which, which is why, of course, we, we do need the gospel every day and why Luther is absolutely right to say that we, you know, we must always be reforming. It's not just the church that always needs to be reformed, but also we as, as individual Christians and individual local churches must always be um, reforming, repenting of sin and, and constantly turning back to Christ. Mm. I think we should pray. Do you mind leading us in prayer that the great themes that come from Scripture that came from the Reformation would continue on in our hearts today? Absolutely, yeah. Be a joy. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for not leaving us in the wretchedness of our sin, not leaving us under your rightful and terrible wrath. 
Um, we thank you that you sent your son to pay for our righteousness uh, in the most extraordinary, costly way. Um, we thank you, Father, that he came to pay for that with death and blood. And he did so because of his extraordinary love. We thank you that we're no longer under the law, but by faith in Christ we can have his righteousness imputed to us. And because of that we can have a, a certain hope of enjoying eternity with you. And so um, I pray for all of us as churches. I pray that we continually do what Luther did and go to the word and be guided by the word, shaped by the word in our preaching and in the way that we uh, relate to one another, in the way that we, we shape our ecclesiology and, and everything about our, our acts of worship. And I also pray, Father, that if there is anybody listening who, who does not yet have the pleasure of knowing you, that in your mercy you would open their eyes and enable them to see the beautiful truths that Martin Luther saw. And I pray uh, all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's October, more than halfway finished, and next week is the exact 500th anniversary since God used a man named Martin Luther to start a Reformation. Joining us today to talk about John Wycliffe from Philadelphia is Dr. Carl Truman. He's a professor of church history at Westminster Seminary in Pennsylvania, and he's also on the new documentary by Haven Today's Stephen McCaskill that's called Luther, The Life and Legacy of the German Reformer. Dr. Truman, thanks for joining us here for the very first time on Haven Today. It's great to be here, Charles. Well, one thing I'd like to ask, we're going to talk about a reformer, John Wycliffe, but what I want to ask you first, looking back almost exactly 500 years uh, when, when Luther kicked it off, the impact to the Reformation, how does it have meaning to us as Christians today? Uh, one important contribution the Reformation made was what we might call making all of life sacred. If you lived in the Middle Ages, then really you had to be involved in some kind of religious professional job, a priest or a monk or a nun, to be considered pursuing a holy calling. One of the things that Luther and the Reformers realized was it's not the intrinsic nature of the calling that makes it holy, it's whether you do it to the glory of God or not. So if you're a Christian who takes great pride in, in the work they do and finds that you can bake cakes or make pots or do accounts to the glory of God, then that is one of the great insights of the Reformation that the whole of life belongs to God and ultimately it's the attitude with which you pursue your earthly calling that makes it a God-glorifying and God-honoring one. Mm. Dr. Truman, many of our listeners may have heard the name John Wycliffe associated with Bible translation and missions. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the man behind this legacy? Yeah, Charles, happy to. Uh, John Wycliffe was born probably somewhere in the 1320s and died in 1384. So he lived really well over 100 years. He died really just about 100 years before Luther was born, if you want to locate him chronologically relative to the Reformation. He was an Englishman. Uh, he was an Oxford academic and quite a, a profound philosopher, an influential philosopher in his own day, but developed um, approaches or theories about the church and about the Christian life that really challenged contemporary uh, Catholic thinking. Uh, for example, uh, his view of the Lord's Supper, he took a view of the Lord's Supper that, that denied the, the sacrificial aspect of the Mass and raised you know, questions about, um, 
the presence of Christ in the, in the bread and the wine. He was also very critical of the idea of the Pope as the, as the head of the church and um, very critical, interesting enough, of the church owning property. He thought that poverty was really to be part of the, the essence mm. of the church. These were dangerous views to hold in the 14th century, of course, uh, but he was able to get away with them because, first of all, he lived in England, and England's an island, and it's very, very difficult for, for the Pope, the Holy Roman Empire, to impose their will upon an island. It's a major logistical exercise to invade a place like England in the 14th century. It's not going to be worth doing it for a heretic. Mm. Uh, and secondly, he had very powerful patronage at the highest level English society. Uh, John of Gaunt, who was a member of the royal family, a very powerful baron, was able to extend considerable protection to Wycliffe. So unlike a lot of heretics, those branded heretics in the Middle Ages, Wycliffe died peacefully in his bed. Mm. But there is an interesting side note to his death that I want to come back to. But first, Let's talk about his desire to translate the Bible into English, his native language. I think we assume he did a lot of the translating, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Yeah. Um, well, it, it probably isn't the case that he translated the Bible, but he was certainly involved and helped to inspire a group that did. He thought it was very important to get the Bible into the vernacular. Uh, he thought preaching was very important. Uh, of course, he's operating at a time before the printing press, uh, so the mm -hmm. mass production of Bibles was impossible. But certainly he thought that access to the Bible in one's own language was very important and was, was an inspiration for the production of, I think, two translations of the Bible. There are two Wycliffe translations of the Bible that we know of. Mm, that's great. I think we ought to talk about several years after his death, what happened? Yeah, well, in the early 15th century, the, the, the church continued to uh, go from crisis to crisis, and a, a major council was summoned at Constance uh, in the second decade of the 15th century. In the Council of Constance, a man called John Huss, who was actually very influenced by Wycliffe's writings, he was a, a professor mm -hmm. and a pastor in Prague, very influenced by Wycliffe's writings, was tried as a heretic and burned at the stake. Uh, and as a result of that, they also decided to dig Wycliffe's body up and burn him at the stake and then throw what was left mm. of him into the local river, the River Swift. So Wycliffe's body was dug up at the beginning of the 15th century uh, and he was burned at the stake. That's very distasteful and very weird <laughs> to us today. Yes. But I think the, the reason for it was that the church really did want to make an example of Wycliffe. And as they hadn't been able to get hold of him when he was alive and martyr him properly, they wanted the sort of the theatrical act of martyring him after his death in order to send a clear message that this man's views are not going to be tolerated by the church. Mm. Well, certainly we remember him for that. Uh, how did Wycliffe connect to the Reformation? That's, a, that's an interesting and, of course, in some ways quite a complicated question. There's a hundred years between Wycliffe and the Reformation. There are some aspects of Wycliffe's theology which are really very medieval. For example, Wycliffe uh, did not believe that Christians could really have assurance of faith. The Reformers did believe that. So that's something that separates Wycliffe from the Reformers. But I think if we're looking for positive connections, a number of things suggest themselves. One, he's an inspirational figure of protest. 
when the reformers like Martin Luther are beginning to come into their own in the 16th century, they look back in time and they draw inspiration from, a, from figures like John Wycliffe and John Huss as men who saw the corruption, the moral corruption and the theological corruption in the Church of the Middle Ages and sought to do something about it. So there's definitely, we might say, an iconic or an inspirational aspect to their lives. In terms of his writings, I think Wycliffe is very, very important on the issue of grace and predestination. He's a, a key figure in the Middle Ages for faithfully transmitting a line of reflection upon God's grace and upon election. Really, we could trace the line from Paul to Augustine uh, to a Thomas Aquinas through to somebody like Wycliffe in the 14th century and then onwards to Luther and Zwingli and Calvin in the 16th. So he stands in that line of faithful reflection upon God's grace. And then the two things that I've already mentioned, uh, the importance of Bible translation, which was absolutely fundamental to the reformers, and the importance of vernacular preaching of the Word of God based upon the Bible, absolutely fundamental to the reformers. So those are some clear points of continuity. And the reformers looked back to Luther and saw him as both as an inspiration and as an example on those points. What should we remember? What lessons can we learn from Wycliffe and his life today? I think the obvious one is love for Scripture. Uh, Wycliffe worked with what he had in his day and generation to try to get these Bible translations produced. And the question is why? Well, he loved Scripture and he thought that the Bible should be central to the church life and central to the individual Christian life. So I think one of the obvious things for us is the importance of Scripture. Secondly, he inspired a movement called Lollardy or the Lollards. They were mm -hmm. generally fairly mm -hmm. uneducated men, but central to, to Lollard life was the preaching of the word. And I think one of the important things, again, for us to grasp from the, the life and times of Wycliffe is the importance of the word preached. It is a great privilege to go to church on Sunday and hear the word proclaimed. And really, it's a lifeline. Uh, the proclamation mm. of the word is very, very important for for the Christian life. So I would say two lessons from, from Wycliffe's life, both of which connect to each other. One is the importance of the Bible uh, for us as a church and as individuals. And secondly, the importance of the proclamation of the word by preaching. Dr. Carl Truman coming to us from Philadelphia. Thank you so much for enlightening us on the life of John Wycliffe today. It's been a great pleasure to spend time with you, Charles. And joining us on the line from Beeson Divinity School in Alabama is Dr. Timothy George. Timothy, thank you so much for joining us for the very first time on Haven Today. I have admired your work from afar for many years. Thanks so much, Charles. It's great to be with you today. Timothy, we're looking this week at Reformers, you should know. And on this program, we're looking at Jan or John Huss, a pre-Reformer really. Can you tell us more about this Reformation forerunner? Well, Jan Hus was born in the country that is today called the Czech Republic. Uh, he was born uh, in the year 1369. This was a period leading up to the time of the Reformation when there were lots of reform movements springing up all over Europe. Uh, for example, in, in England, there was, a, there was a man named uh, John Wycliffe. He was a professor at Oxford, and he had followers called the Lollards. They began to translate the Bible into English and spread it, even though it was an illegal thing for them to do. He had different ideas, challenging some of the ideas of the medieval Catholic Church. Well, Jan Hus picked up on that, and he added his own distinctive note to it, 
and became one of the leading voices for reform in the church in that period of time. Uh, two of the things that he really emphasized were the importance of the Bible. Uh, he, was a, he was not only a professor at uh, Charles University in Prague, that's one of the oldest universities in Europe, north of the Alps. Uh, he was also a pastor. When you go to Prague today, you can actually see a structure called the Bethlehem Chapel. It's a, it's a mega church in the 15th century right there in Prague, seating over 2,000 people. And Jan Hus used to preach there to vast throngs of people who were moved by his sermons based on the scriptures. He was a biblical theologian and a biblical pastor in his teaching and preaching. The other thing that we remember him for is because he said the people of God should be able to have the Lord's Supper in both kinds. That means both the bread and the cup. Up until that time, they were not allowed to have the cup. It was only the priests who, who could take the bread and the cup. But who said this belongs to the whole people of God? He made a big point about that. Well, uh, all of this got him into trouble. Uh, he was summoned to appear at the Council of Constance, which was meeting in the year 1415. And there he went on the promise that he would be released safely, had a safe conduct. The emperor violated that, and he ended up tried and actually burned alive at the stake in the year 1450. So we remember Hus as not only a great preacher, a great pastor, a theologian, but he was also a martyr of the faith. Now, fast forward about 100 years, you come to the time of the Reformation itself, and Hus becomes a very important influence on Martin Luther. Hus's name means goose, Jan Hus, Jan the goose. Uh, Luther took the image of a swan, and so many people made that connotation between John Hus, the goose, and Martin Luther, the swan, who recovered many of his teachings and, of course, added his own distinctive voice uh, to the reform. At one point, they accused Luther of uh, teaching the same thing John Hus had been condemned for at the Council of Constance. And Luther said, I don't really know much about this, but he studied his writings, and he came out and he declared, Yah, ich bin ein Hussite. Yes, I am a Hussite. And so we think about John Hus in terms of a pre-reformer, a proto-reformer. He, in a way, paved uh, the way for Luther, for many of the other great reformers, became also the, the calling on the Bible, going back to the scriptures as the basis for everything that we believe and teach. Dr. Timothy George from the Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's my pleasure, Charles. May God bless you and all of your listeners. And all this month, we're commemorating 500 years since God used a single man to spark the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. But not that many know the name Katarina von Bora and the role she played as Luther's wife. He wrote to a friend that he had decided to marry her because it would make the devil weep and the angels laugh. And I think it probably did. It's a great story. And joining me on the program now is my wife, Janet. Janet, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Charles. And, you know, I think Katerina really is a reformer, we should know. She was liberated by the power of the gospel, just like Martin Luther, and their marriage together showed the world that the everyday life of a Christian family is holy in the eyes of God. Well, that was one of Martin Luther's great realizations. Everyday life is holy to the Lord. The established church had elevated the celibate life, but Martin saw that the day-in, day-out life of a believing husband and wife, 
of a believing mother and father were just as holy to God, and that being a shoemaker or a farmer was a holy calling, just like being a pastor. He even wrote that when a father changes a diaper, God and all the angels (laughs) rejoice. And that was radical thinking at the time. And it made its way into the convent where Katarina von Bora had been sent as a little girl. Just after her mother died, her father sent her, she was only five, to a convent school. And then at the age of nine, he had her transferred to a convent where two of her aunts were nuns. Where she took vows to be a nun, and she probably would have lived and died there, except for some little gospel tracts that found their way in, little tracts written by Martin Luther. She Hmm. and several of the other nuns got hold of them, and slowly the light started to dawn. And they began to understand the gospel, to understand the good news, and to experience the freedom that it brings. Oh, how it does. They wanted to live out their newfound freedom, which for them meant leaving behind their habits and the life of the convent. It was Paul the Apostle who wrote, and these words had great meaning to those nuns. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's from freedom that you've been set free. And the nuns realized they were free. They didn't have to cloister themselves away in order to live a holy life. From Luther's writings, they came to see that God calls believers to live in the world, not to be of it, but to be in it. So the end result, 12 of them decided they wanted to leave the convent. But how could they do that? They just couldn't walk away. German law said they were legally bound to their convent. They could be seriously punished if they left. So they decided to write to Martin Luther himself and Mm. ask for his help. And he came up with a brilliant, though possibly stinky, plan. I love this story. It was on an Easter morning, April 5th, 1523. A merchant and his nephew drove a wagon load of fish barrels into the convent and put the 12 nuns in barrels and then casually drove away. Three of the girls went back to their homes, but the other nine couldn't go home. So they were taken to Wittenberg, where Luther helped them find homes. And then a couple of years later, all of them were matched and married, except for one, Katarina. Katarina. She had her own ideas. She eventually let it be known that she would actually be quite pleased to marry Dr. Luther himself. But he thought it was out of the question because of what his life was like. I mean, it was a volatile time, and he was right in the thick of it. He was poor. He was under threat. He was working night and day. But he changed his mind, and he wrote to a friend, and he said, If I can swing it, I'll take Kate to be my wife ere I die. So then on June 13, 1525, Martin Luther and Katarina von Bora were married. He was 42. She was 25. Luther wrote that it was quite a change for him. You wake up in the morning and there are a pair of pigtails that weren't there before. But Kate, (laughs) as he called her, was more than a pair of pigtails. She transformed the old moldy former cloister where Luther was living into a home. And she launched all kinds of enterprises to feed her household. She kept cows for the milk and butter and made cheese. And she even started a piggery because Martin liked pork. And after that, he occasionally referred to her as my Lord Kate, mistress of the pigsty. (laughs) 
And it wasn't long before their home was a crowded, busy place. They not only had their own children, six of them, but at various times they had Kate's niece and nephew. They had 11 of Martin's nieces and nephews. And there were students who boarded with them. And this unending stream of guests who came to meet with their husband and to take part in the famous table talks he had about the truth of the scriptures. I want you to hear a sweet story that shows how Katie brought balance to Martin's business of theology, but the rest of his life as well. Undoubtedly, it would take a woman of remarkable character to handle being married to a man like Martin Luther, someone who could not only endure his good-natured ribbing, but be able to give as good as she got. Katie was a remarkable woman in her own right, a great home brewer. She also did some gardening work in the town in order to generate some money for the Luther household and took in lodgers. And they seem to have been a couple who are greatly in love with each other. One of the touching things about visiting Wittenberg is that outside the, the entrance of the, into the house, the Augustinian cloister that elected John gave them as a wedding present. Uh, there's a, a, a door frame, an arch, with a little stool on either side. This was apparently a present, a birthday present that Katie bought her husband because she didn't think they spent enough time talking together. So she bought this uh, door frame so that at the end of the day they could sit on either side of the door and just talk to each other. So it really is a, a very beautiful and touching marriage that they had. A scene from Luther, the life and legacy of the German reformer. You're listening to Haven Today, and I'm Charles Morris with my wife, Janet. We're talking about Katarina or Kate Von Bora. You know, Janet, that story we just heard from the documentary really shows how she helped balance Luther and their family. But she not only ministered to her own family, she met the needs of people all around their town. She listened to their problems. She gave them care, even medicine when they were sick. She counseled them. And she even advised them in their business affairs. She was pretty good at that. Yeah, I think their home life won respect for Martin Luther's radical new ideas of what a holy Christian life should really look like. They were this living answer to the argument that salvation by faith alone could not produce a holy life. They knew they didn't have to work for their salvation, but their gratitude for the free salvation they had in Christ just overflowed in a lifetime of love and of good works. And they weren't into faking their holiness. They were very open and honest, even full of wit. They loved each other. And that meant they spoke their minds and they freely admitted their sins, but they put all of their faith in Jesus. One of my favorite stories was when Luther was fighting depression, which he often did. Kate endured it for several days, but then one day she met him at the door and she was completely dressed in black as if she was in mourning. Well, Luther was alarmed. Who died? And Kate just said, God. And Luther started to get mad. Why this foolishness? But Kate said, it's true. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. And it worked. Hmm. He came out of his depression. I so like that story. The blessing of a Christian marriage. It's both husband and wife pointing each other to Christ and correcting in love when one or the other err. Let's listen to another story from the Luther documentary where something like this happened in the Luther home. Katie seems to have ruled the roost somewhat within the house. There's an anecdote where he makes 
what she considers to be an inappropriate joke or harsh comment about an Anabaptist leader, one of the Schwerma, one of the crazy people out there. And she rebukes him and says, you shouldn't speak like that about a minister of the gospel. And apparently he backs off straight away, he backs down. Uh, he refers to her as his chain, he plays on the, the Latin catena, sounds a little bit like the Latin for Catherine, Katharina. He plays on that as a pun, so he calls it his chain. He also refers to her as my Lord Katie. So uh, I think within the home, Luther probably had to mind his P's and Q's, as we would say back in England. He was uh, very much uh, the loving, doting husband, and she was very much in charge, I think. That's Dr. Carl Truman from the Luther documentary. Martin and Kate would be married for a little more than 20 years, good years, but also hard years. And they stuck together, pointing each other and their children to Jesus. But eventually Martin died of a heart attack. Kate ended up losing all their property in a political backlash against Luther's movement. And several years later, when the plague struck, she was forced to flee with her children. And on that trip, she was thrown out of a wagon into the icy waters of a ditch, and she never recovered. But I love her last words. Her last words from her bed just before she died were, I will stick to Christ like a burr to a top coat. <laughs> a perfect image for an imperfect saint saved by grace alone. From all that we've heard, Janet, it seems like the Lord brought Martin and Katie together and used them mightily for the gospel and the kingdom, doesn't it? They modeled what a Christian home full of repentance and grace and rooted in Christ can look like. That's true. Charles Martin once wrote, a good wife is not found accidentally and without divine guidance. On the contrary, she's a gift from God. And I must completely <laughs> agree with Martin Luther. Janet, thanks for joining me here on the program today. It was my pleasure, Charles. Thanks for having me. We hear a lot about Martin Luther and some of the other reformers, but I want to introduce you today to a Spanish priest in Spain, a priest who was gripped by the Reformation truth of the gospel through Luther's writings. His name, Juan de Valdez. And joining us to talk about him is another one, Dr. John Fesco. He's a professor and academic dean at a seminary in Southern California. John, can you tell us a little bit about this man they called the Luther of Spain? Juan de Valdez uh, really picked my interest when I was uh, studying the Reformation because uh, I'm of Hispanic descent. My mom is from Mexico. I speak Spanish. And uh, it always fascinated me to find a reformer uh, that spoke Spanish. And in this particular case, uh, Juan de Valdez may not be a, a household name like a Luther or a Calvin, uh, but he certainly was an important figure for a, a number of reasons. First of all, he lived in Madrid, Spain uh, in the... Uh, middle of the 16th century, and uh, he was originally uh, arrested and uh, tried before the Spanish Inquisition because he and others were beginning to take a second look at what the Bible had to say about many things and questioning uh, the official teaching of the church. And so from there, he escaped uh, and he fled to Italy. And when he was there, that's when he first encountered uh, the works of Martin Luther. And as he began to digest those works, uh, there's uh, one scholar 
scholar that says Martin Luther first spoke Spanish uh, in Italy because here Valdez began to read. And I think that what happened is that as he read Luther, I think a lot of the questions that he had began to be answered uh, from the vantage point that as Luther exegeted the scriptures and pointed uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that really resonated by God's grace uh, with Valdez. Now, what makes Valdez even especially more interesting along these lines is not only uh, was he personally interested in these things, but he wrote a number of theological works uh, in the mid-1530s. The Spiritual Alphabet, which was kind of like the first kind of instructional document teaching people in the elements of the Christian faith. He also wrote a book called 110 Divine Considerations, which you can go on Amazon and you can pick up a copy of that book. It's relatively small, but filled up with a lot of great truths. But what was particularly interesting about him is that not only did he write these things, but he taught others. And one of the key figures that he taught was an Italian theologian by the name of Peter Martyr Vermigli. Now, many may not have heard of Vermigli, uh, but uh, it was uh, Valdez's teaching that convinced uh, Vermigli to embrace the Protestant Reformation. And then from there, it really kind of spreads like wildfire because Vermigli, uh, he was eventually a professor in England and he took part, uh, participated in uh, writing the uh, Book of Common Prayer as well as the 39 Articles. And so here you have, you know, an entire wing of uh, Protestantism influenced kind of indirectly. You could say that the spiritual grandfather of these documents, these English documents, was Juan de Valdez. In addition to that, Vermigli also instructed a theologian by the name of uh, Zacharias Ursinus. Now, again, many may not have heard of him, but Zacharias Ursinus was the chief author of what we now call the Heidelberg Catechism. You can go online, you can Google that and find it. It's one of the more popular catechisms that teaches the elements and the basic truths of the Christian faith. And uh, many denominations to this day profess that faith. So well beyond his own personal embracing of the truth, well beyond his own works through his teaching, uh, teaching those like Vermigli and Ursinus, you can say that Valdez had a tremendous impact upon the spread of the gospel, not just in Spain, not just in Italy, but arguably throughout the world. I think that uh, one of the big questions is, is, well, what's so significant about Valdez narrowly and then more broadly, what's so significant about the Protestant Reformation? Well, what's important to note is that at that particular time in church history, uh, most of the theologians of the church uh, believed that we were saved or we are saved by a combination of Christ's work uh, and our work or our obedience. And as common as such a conception as that might be, uh, I think the 16th century reformers like Valdez read the scriptures. I think particularly one of the most fundamental uh, documents in this respect is the Bible, and not only the Bible, but Paul's epistle to Rome. And as Valdez reflected upon, especially chapters 3, 4, and 5, he came to the conviction that it's not a combination of Christ's work and our work that saves us, but rather it is exclusively Christ's work. In fact, in one quotation from his 110 considerations, particularly consideration number 108, he says, 
Uh, by that which I read in Holy Scripture and by that which I know in myself, I understand that to come to believe the good of Christ's obedience and that in Christ's obedience we all obeyed and that in Christ's raising up we all arose. In other words, he's saying here that Christ's obedience is his obedience and that Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. And in this respect, it's Christ alone Hence that Reformation slogan, by Christ alone or solus Christus, by faith alone, uh, sola fide. Uh, that is how we are saved. Not by a combination of our good works and Christ's good works, but Christ's good works alone. And I think that's the truth that captivated Valdez as well as uh, many, if not all, of the Protestant reformers. And that's what led them to try to reform or correct uh, the teaching of the church. And in the end, that's what they did. And they, in many respects, let the gospel loose upon the world. And to this day, we can say that as Protestants, we are heirs of their faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. Welcome again to Haven Today and on the line with us from Vancouver, British Columbia and Regent College is Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh, who happens to be an Anglican, and that fits so well with the person we're talking about today. Bruce, thank you so much for being back on the program with me. Hi, Charles. Good to be with you again. I thought, who else could we talk with about Cranmer than Bruce Hindmarsh? And um, you actually went to school uh, in Oxford. That's where you got your Ph.D. You know, it's interesting. We've, we've talked about the Reformation all week on the program. And uh, we've talked about uh, uh, there hasn't been a lot of violence. There was violence for the Reformation, but we haven't talked about it in relationship to reformers. But this guy Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, he lost his life because of it, didn't he? That's right, he did. He did. The uh, English uh, Reformation was uh, tumultuous. It involved matters of uh, high state, and um, and Cranmer was involved in, in all of that. And um, so one of the issues um, in the Reformation, and this is true to some extent in Germany and other areas, but there was a, there was a resentment of the papacy and uh, the Reformation, <clears throat> the rise of the vernacular languages, saw also a new spirit of nationalism and aware that the papacy seemed something Italian and okay. it seemed like it's draining um, you know, England, Germany of their finances. There's a resentment of um, uh, the, uh, the papacy as uh, associated with luxury and immorality and so on. And so uh, part of the way that some of these so-called magisterial reformations proceeded is with, at one level or another with the support or involvement of the magistrate. And in England, that meant um, high affairs of state involved um, initially Henry VIII and um, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon needed to be dissolved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Cranmer is a university student. He's at Jesus College in Cambridge, and he's a part of a group that's reading some of the Reformation tracts. They are called uh, Little Germany, their little reading group. And he was willing to support um, King Henry VIII. And it's really, he all the way through his career, this is part of what got him into trouble, he had a high, high view of the... Uh, royal sovereignty and of uh, submission and obedience to the, the your royal sovereign. And so he was able, in a sense, to go to work theologically and try to defend um, 
King Henry VIII in in all of this. In fact, he was sent on a kind of embassy um, hmm. to try to talk to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to see if he could work out um, something on behalf of Henry. And uh, and then in the end, the when the Archbishop of Canterbury died, um, Henry made him made him Archbishop. So he's got a very high position, and right from the beginning, it involves politics. But it also means that um, um, as you rise, so you can fall. Hmm. So he's moving in a kind of reform direction under Henry VIII, but it's really after Henry died and under Edward um, that he really gets a chance to move in a reform direction. And in terms of um, what's been called his immortal bequest to the English language, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, and to see the... Uh, to revise the historic medieval liturgies in a more biblical direction, move them from Latin into the common language in English, so it's a book of common prayer for the people. So in these various ways, Cranmer had enormous influence in setting up mm. the um, setting the church in a in a reformed direction. But then after um, Edward, Queen Mary returned to the throne. And she's a Catholic, so mm. she's the daughter of uh, Henry and Catherine of Aragon, and her legitimacy, they call this the problem of the Tudor succession, that her legitimacy as a monarch depended upon being Catholic, and Cranmer is on the outside again, and that's where he is uh, imprisoned, he's tried, he kind of waffles back and forth, and he ended up uh, recanting all the Protestant doctrines and so on that he had taught. And so it's quite a crisis. So he's in mm. prison, he's going to be, um, he's facing execution, and they bring him these recantations just to, um, to make a general recantation of what he believed. Uh, but then, in, um, to his lasting credit, um, at the very end, at St. Mary the Virgin, when he went on trial at the university church that's still there, right in the heart of Oxford, and uh, he makes his speech, and they're hoping that he will come out now in support of um, the papacy, but in fact he recants his recantation. And he, mm-hmm. um, and he said, this hand that signed my recantation is the first one that will go into the fire. And it's like they almost had to catch up with him on the way to the, uh, the fire once the, um, the sentence had been pronounced. And then uh, when he was burned at the stake, indeed, he held his hand out as long as he could. And let because he uh, was embarrassed for having um, having uh, having recanted, so he's a he's somebody who kind of made good at the end, and uh, and his confession um, was you know sealed in his own blood. It was um, paid the cost of his own life. His lasting legacy is really um, the English Book of Common Prayer, and that's what, as I say, people think of it as Cranmer's immortal bequest. It, mm. um, so much of the language, it's, it's beautiful. It's the great age of um, the English language. It comes to its final form in the age of Shakespeare. Many, many phrases and um, cadences that all Christians use and mm-hmm. that are, mm-hmm. are used in weddings and funerals and so on come out of Cranmer's prayer book. And, and not just it, Anglicans. Uh, oh, not just Anglicans. Yes. No, uh, as I say, it's, it's his bequest to the English language and to English-speaking Christians everywhere. And it's, uh, I've been deeply formed by this prayer book. When I was 16 years of age, I um, went to a used book shop in Winnipeg and found a little wine-colored uh, prayer book for 25 cents. Hmm. And I began trying to make sense of this book, and it uh, looks old-fashioned, and the language is old-fashioned. But I was just drawn to the deeply biblical 
uh, um, spirit of the prayer book by its its cadences. It's uh, it's deeply contritional. It make, we are aware of our own sinfulness. We're aware of our need for God. It's uh, written at the time when it is. It's very aware of the dangers that surround us and the need for God's protection. And it places you on your knees. Mm. And so for mm. my wife and I, we've been... Um, uh, this has been a part of our own devotion um, for years and years and years and years. There's prayer books in almost every room in the house uh, hmm. here. We just um, um, have found Cranmer to be a great teacher of what it is to pray and how to pray. And he, you know, eighty percent of the prayer book is is simply scripture. Simply that's the language just of scripture. what I was going to ask you. It's straight out mm-hmm. of the Bible, almost yeah. all the words. Yes. And, you know, in, in his revision of the communion service, um, J.I. Packer pointed this out, that there's a cycle that gets repeated actually three times of declaring the gospel, and then the response is, is confession, and then forgiveness is announced, and then praise. Mm. And it's like this U, U-shaped pattern of declaring the word of God, confessing your sins, the absolution of forgiveness of our sins, and then open my mouth and uh, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise mm. and that pattern is just so deeply a gospel pattern that's woven through the, um, the services so um, so this uh, reformer who gave up his life did so much to set the direction of the English church in a reformed direction and really a concern just to shine the light of scripture on everything the church is doing its doctrine and its uh, its worship and its liturgies Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh, thank you for joining us today and sharing just a little bit about the English Reformation and Thomas Cranmer. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. And I'm so thankful for Barry Cooper, Carl Truman, Timothy George, John Fesco, Bruce Hindmarsh, and my wife, Janet, for joining me today to talk about the Reformation's most influential leaders. Now, if you want to hear more content like this, why don't you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? And if you enjoyed this particular episode, would you help us get the word out? Leave us a five-star review. And you can also go to haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover more episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you one more time for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris.